Welcome to It's Just Historical, a podcast dedicated to reading, writing, and publishing historical fiction. I'm your host, Suzanne Dunlap, author of Historical Fiction for Adults and Teens. This podcast is brought to you by my passion for the art and craft of writing fiction and my delight in talking to authors I admire about books I love. I'm here today with Sandra Gulland, one of my absolute favorite historical novelists. She is the best-selling author of the Josephine Trilogy, and she seems to flip back and forth between the Napoleonic era and the 17th century, two of my favorite places to hang out in as it happens. <laughs> but anyway, so Sandra, how are you doing? I'm fine. And I should let you know that I've jumped, I keep going back in time. I'm now in the 16th century. I think <sighs> I seem to do that, you know, uh, one era will lead me back in time to another and who knows how far this will go. Yes, so fascinating. But you started, the first books that were published were the Josephine Trilogy. That's right. What led yeah. you to that? I read, I was uh, a sponsoring editor for a, a book publisher and I thought it would be great to have a series of young adult biographies for kids. And so I went to the library and I said, I better read a young adult biography. So I got one out and it was about Josephine. And that's how it goes. I went, whoa, that was a life. (laughs) Yeah. And that became my fascination with Josephine. And I knew at the time that, I would write about her, but I also knew I'd have to learn how to write and that I had a lot of research to do. So for at least a decade, I was carrying, I had this box of books on Josephine and I was, it was on my someday. Hmm. And so finally, when I decided, okay, I'm, I better, I, I wrote a novel, a contemporary mystery about an eccentric old woman in a small village who thinks that she's the reincarnation of Josephine. (laughs) Okay. Yes. So this is how it goes, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And actually, no, she, it's also a mystery because she, she discovers this chapter that she thinks is Josephine. It's just nuts. And uh, I went to Jane Urquhart, who's a wonderful Canadian author and was writer in residence at, in Ottawa, which is about two hours from us. And I sent it to her with a one word covering letter saying, help. And she said, she said, what really comes to life is this tiny excerpt of, the, of a diary of Josephine. Mm-hmm. She said, Just write that. <laughs> <laughs> Just write that. <laughs> just write that. Throw out the 400 pages you've written and oh. just write that. But she was right. Mm-hmm. And I just, I had never, I didn't have the nerve to do it until she pushed me in that direction. And so that's what I did. And the world is so glad that happened. <laughs> it was such a, when I started off thinking, oh, it's one book. And when I got to about 500 pages and Napoleon hadn't even showed up, (laughs) I thought, oh, this might be more. 
So then I thought it was two volume series. And by that time I had an agent interested and, and a publisher who said, no, she didn't like two volume things. Yeah. It had to yeah. be one big book, which I couldn't cope with because it would be a thousand words long or pages long. And that night I was discouraged. Okay, this is going nowhere. And that night it came to me that there was a, a little story in the middle of Josephine's life. And I just said, pulled it out. And I said, okay, that's the middle story. It's a trilogy. So I pitched that to the publisher, HarperCollins and my editor. And they said, sure. <laughs> so I hadn't read, I hadn't written. I've only written the first part. And that was really rough. So all of a sudden, I was panicked. I had to write <laughs> the rest of it. <laughs> yeah. So you know how it is. It goes. Oh, yeah. It's yeah. crazy. Anyway, it was wonderful. Yeah, it took me over 10 years. Wow. Yeah, well, it shows the depth of your research and the meticulous nature of it is amazing. But more than that, and it's something that I noticed because I just finished reading The Shadow Queen, which we'll get to in a second, but is how it never weighs down your narrative. It's always, it's always just so seamless and so delicately sketched in that you're sitting there thinking, wait, is this all made up or is it real? And then you find out later that, oh no, it's real. <laughs> and not because it's unbelievable, but because it just flows so well as a story, which is a really, so much. It's a really tough thing to do as a historical novelist. I find, I know, and most writers do, I just do endless drafts. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and when I start getting impatient, uh, out it goes. So yeah. half of what I write gets tossed. So I like to think that sharpens it up a bit. But anyway, thank you so much. Those were very kind words, and I got shivers when you <laughs> <laughs> I like to get that's the best kind of shivers but but so you're re, you work really hard on your drafts obviously it takes you a long time to to get everything together do you have beta readers do you how do you do that I am a big believer in beta readers and and hiring freelance editors because I had been an editor in my previous life and so I was a big believer in the editing process. And I didn't feel that any of my editors were tough enough with me. Mm. Also, one of the most rewarding editorial jobs I had for a long time was as editor of a, a series of books that were written for school they were a series of novels written for reluctant readers. Mm. A teenage boy might be reading at a grade three level. And so this would have to be probably the first novel that this, this kid ever succeeded in reading and enjoying. So these books were like boot camp fiction. You just had to really make fiction work. Yeah. Anyway, so I 
pulled together some high school kids locally. And whenever a manuscript came in, I would have it photocopied and distributed to them. And then when we would sit down, and this would be after school, and over popcorn and pop, argue about the book. And so it, I never was able to predict how the kids would like a story. Ever, never. Interesting. It always yeah. shocked me. And I would record the discussion and send it to the author. And mm. so no matter what I said, what the kids had to say about what was working and what wasn't working in a book really carried a lot of weight. So I, I wanted that for myself when I was looking for better readers for myself. And so the best better readers I was able to find were book clubs who were willing to read a close to final draft of the novel and record their discussion. And these would have to be people I didn't know. Yeah. Otherwise, be to yeah they would yeah they'd feel like they had to say nice things right yeah Yeah. and and then I would get the tape recording this is back in the days when we had this was tapes Mm -hmm. yeah and I would play it and I would cry (laughs) and I'd go to bed sick because this would be very close to final yeah and then I'd wake up in the morning I'd say okay it's time to get to work I and I say and then I'd pull out the manuscript and I would read it. And then I would say, no wonder they're having trouble with that chapter or no wonder. And I go, and then whole chapters would get tossed out and new ones written. And wow. You know, yeah. That is a fabulous idea. I, I, if I had easy access to book clubs, I would just steal it from you. <laughs> oh, cool. I'll do it. I think, <laughs> I think it's wonderful. It's, I was lucky enough to have, um, people in my publishing houses who were willing to find or help find right through uh, yeah and on on for my latest two my last one and and the one I'll be working on now which are young adult young adults don't have book clubs as a rule so I assembled my own group from all over and now we could do it Zoom. We could have a Zoom talk. But that was very helpful, too. It was, there's nothing like it. Yeah, yeah. I know. So I know. Do, do I believe in better readers? You bet. Uh, <laughs> yes, I'm humbled by that. <laughs> but yeah, it is hard because there's, a, you know, people who read things aren't always willing to be that honest because they yeah. are worried about hurting the feelings of somebody. There's, a, there's actually an online uh, service which hooks people up with writers and it's called, and it's going to escaping me because my brain is a sieve at the moment, but I've done some reading, beta reading for them. And what they do is they get you pay and they give you, they get you three readers and it's nothing. You don't make mon- a lot of money on it. It's some small amount of money to read, depending on the length. But I wanted to do it because I always learn something when I read people's <laughs> manuscripts. And, and I will always be scrupulously honest about things because I don't think it helps the writer at all to let no. them get away with something. No, absolutely. 
Yeah. The thing is with getting feedback. Oh, and one year my publisher set up the manuscript to be better read by the sales people from across Canada in a big chain or chain. So that was interesting. But I find that individually, if it's in a group, you can pick up people are sharing laughter or sharing Mm -hmm. groans and stuff like that. But individually, some readers might say, oh, this should happen. Or it would be, it should be like this. And it's rare that the suggestion itself is a good one, unless it's a professional who tends to be spot on. But it's always important to say there's a reason that they're making. Yes. You have to look at why they're having trouble with that and what they're looking for in their suggestion. What is right. the cause of... Yeah, um, yeah, the difference is, of course, that a, someone who's reading it, who isn't an editor, wants to solve the problem. For the as opposed to just point it out, and an editor knows enough to just point it out. So that's really fascinating stuff to hear. I always love to dig into how how writers approach their work. One reason I enjoy your podcast, I love it too. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's just nuts and bolts. Let's get into it. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So let's talk about let's talk let's talk the 17th century a little bit. You've written two books that take place in the seventh 17th century. The first was about Louise de La Valliere, who is a fascinating character. And I just read the second one, which is The Shadow Queen. And I knew and knowing who the Shadow Queen was, I went into it thinking, oh, this is going to be all about uh, Madame de Montespan. And then I was just completely delighted and completely hooked on this character who is a a satellite, one of her sort of satellite people. And that view, and in fact, I was just, I just had a wonderful conversation with Meg Keneally yesterday. uh, She's Australian. She was in Sydney. (laughs) She actually made the point that she loves to do that because you can, you find out things about a historical character that are so different if you are looking through the eyes of someone who's who interacts with them as opposed to being in in their actual shoes right yes anyway so that's what you did with this marvelous character Claude Desoyers yeah Claudette yeah she was really uh, an incredible character and for me of course the really wonderful part was all the theater history. Being a person who likes the arts and tends to put all my work around having something to do with the arts if I possibly can. So tell me a little bit about how you did that research, if you can remember it, because I'm fascinated. I just, I did, I just loved, I, I loved getting into the theater. Who doesn't? And so in Paris, I was able to locate the locations, the approximate locations of the theaters. And on my first trip there, I I posted something on my blog um, saying, I can't find the theater of the Marais. I know it's Mm -hmm. here somewhere. There's no sign. There's nothing, you know. Um, And then I got a, a message through my blog post. Can I help? 
<laughs> and this man was the foremost expert on uh, theater of this period. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so basically, he, it was like a master class. Because he was able to say, read this, read this, read this, and which of course is delicious to get a good list of books and then have discussions and stuff like that. He was fantastic. He's Australian, a Brit in Australia, and um, we met once in Paris, but basically it was all uh, intense, just happened upon the perfect person. I I find that a lot of people hold what they need to their their vest. They don't say anything. Mm. Uh, but I find if you put out the problems you're having and you, you make it known, people come to you. Yeah. yeah. And I'm just having that right now because I'm researching falconry. And now I'm <gasps> 16th century falconry. I, I was emailing people in the UK and looking for trying to find answers to blah, blah, blah. And, and I happened upon a guy who's the foremost expert on 16th century falconry in the UK. So yeah. it was, again, like a master class. And so, yeah. 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 People like to share their knowledge. Yes. Yeah, they're extremely generous. Yeah. And uh, so... Part of writing any book is happening upon those people who can really help you bring it to life. Either so, the people or the resources sometimes. And often those, the perfect resources are in the footnotes of other yes. books, I find. But yeah, anyway. That and the, yeah. What's, yeah, what's interesting too is I tell pe people when I'm talking about writing historical fiction, I say, Wikipedia is fine because you go and you look at all the footnotes and there you can find the sources you actually need to use. That's right. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. So you went back to the Napoleonic era for Game of Hope. That's to right. Another fabulous. I mean, as you know, I, I myself delved into the boarding school that was, do you want to talk about that a little bit, about how that came about? The Game of Hope? That was a, a situation where a publisher actually made me an offer I couldn't refuse for a number of reasons. This was, Penguin came to me and said, they actually sent, I was in Mexico at the time, my publisher's in Toronto, and, and they sent her this big box with a big ribbon, and inside were chocolates and this scrolled up offer. <laughs> How nice. <laughs> this doesn't happen every day at all. The offer was for me to write two young adult novels, and one would be about Hortense, Josephine's mm -hmm. daughter. And the other one would be a subject of my choosing. Mm -hmm. And so I had been away from the Napoleonic world for a decade, I think. Yeah. And worse, I had sold my Napoleonic library to a, a used books dealer because I needed to have room for yeah. all my books on the Court of the Sun King and stuff yeah. like that. But I did have my key books. I kept the ones that I had marked up so much no one would want them. Yeah. And ones I just couldn't bear to part with. 
I decided, I, I spent about two months looking at Hortense's story to see if, because I have to be really caught up in a, in a book subject to do it. Yep, me too. And absolutely, it takes years. You have to be passionate. And so it took me, I had to think about it carefully. And I saw that there was a really good story in her, or in her teen years. And I didn't want anyone else to tell it. (laughs) I wanted to be the one to write that story. I'll tell you something a little bizarre. One of the things I did is I consulted with this channeler. I go to, oh, maybe every four years, five years. Mm -hmm. And she's the real deal, I think. Anyway, she said a number of things to me that are irrefutable. This is all kind of playful, but I said, I want you to call it Hortense, and I, I, want you, I want to see what she has to say about this project. And according to this channeler, she's the, what Hortense had to say about was, well, it's about time. Oh, no, how funny. <laughs> anyway, that's all in yeah. not yeah. your standard scholastic approach. But anyway, it was very much a short <laughs> It's <long>. not? <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. I'm going to be taking a workshop about tarot for fiction writers. I could. Are you, are you taking it from Chris? Yes. Yes, I am. Because oh, I, I love that interview and I was tempted myself to yeah. uh, explore that because I, I think that would be very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Really yeah. interesting. I'm very excited to do that. There are all sorts of different ways to get into a book and you, you do everything possible in my yeah. opinion. Yeah. yeah. And for me, you know, when I'm stuck, I just go back and start researching again. You just go and look for stuff. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's absolutely. And then the lights start going off and all yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. It was interesting because I don't know if you follow Aaron Davies, who's a sort of super reviewer on uh, for historical fiction on no. Facebook. She, you need to look her up. She's really great. And I, I actually interviewed her for my podcast, but she posted a question four questions about historical novels that she wanted people to talk about. And one was author's historical note, yes or no. And I was like, yes, you have to have one because it's just so important to to discover where all the history came from and how it became this creative work. Absolutely. I right now I'm really very much into the Elizabethan era. If I'm not researching falconry, I'm researching the early life of, of Queen Elizabeth I. Uh-huh. And I'm just totally blown away with that. But So I've been listening to the, hist- the biographical novels series uh-huh. by Alison Weir. Oh, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I love at the end where she goes into quite a bit of detail of the history her, the reason that she chose to take this imp- uh, this interpretation or that or what mm-hmm. the evidence is to support this and that it's fantastic yeah I just uh, now I, I'm um, in touch with someone in that roundabout way where you you get the kind of help you need with someone who's a medieval, kind of specialists in falconry in Canada. And so he gave me some books to get, and I got one that is just 
perfect because I've got quite a library, but this one gives me the details of day to day, how to make gloves, how to, how to do all those things. Can you share the title of that with me? <laughs> sure. It's Falconry and Hawking uh-huh. um, by Philip Glazier. I think I've heard of it, but I will look, look it up. I don't think I got it. I was limited to it for a while to what I could get out of my local library, which is a wonderful library, but they don't have a huge collection. Oh, so no, this is like great. That. She's got patterns from how to make things and the awesome. right type of leather and yeah, yeah. Every, all the little details that most folks don't cover because either it's something everybody thinks everybody knows. Yeah, yeah. Like transportation. And then it's so funny because I was, you know, what I loved, I absolutely loved in your historical note for the Shadow Queen, how you, when you explained the value of the coins, the money. Because that's something I always struggle with. You say, okay, this, she spent 60 Louis d'Or. What the hell does that mean? Yes. <laughs> and that's always a, a difficult one to carry hands with. Yeah. And the further back in time, the harder it is just because everybody's changing everything. You might be on a border from a place that has a completely different calendar. Yeah. Easter is not the same day. And then there's, of course, the French Revolution where everything got changed with the calendar. (laughs) Because in Canada, we're still having completely converted to metric and that's yeah. been, what, 40 years or something? Yeah. They're and not even trying here in the United States, which is just bizarre. Yeah. But anyway, having been in a country where you could see what it takes to convert, how long it takes to convert to another way, and in the French Revolution where everything changed, everything, yeah. the calendar, the metric, the way scales, the, ah, how they didn't go crazy, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Although I suppose life on its pace was sufficiently slower. So maybe that had something to do with it. I don't know. That's difficult to... Here's the thing, a thing that I struggle with sometimes is that people want to read books that have a really fast pace, generally speaking, or that keep you turning the pages, which of course is the ideal, no matter what is going on. But that somehow sort of creates a little fictional thing because it doesn't really comport with how life actually was in those times. It's true. Yeah. So how do you deal with this balance between what the demands of fiction, demands of readers today and the actual things that happened in the history? That's a very good question. Number one, it has to appeal to the readers. That's the number one thing. And then to stay as true to that time travel business as possible, that's, you you have to jump, you have to, it's a push pull and you can jump. Yes. Yes. (laughs) I know. Making time pass. Very important thing to be able to do. (laughs) Jump ahead. Um, yeah. And I always, as I'm writing um, revision and revision and revision, I always keep a note on what I will have to mention in the author's note about what changes I'm making. Or 
I'll, I'll, and I'll make editorial footnotes to myself in the drafts where I'll say, if I stay with this, I'm going to have to explain why yeah. it's actually this, but I've changed it and stuff like that yeah. for whatever reason. But mainly the big problem is that there are a hundred more people in everybody's lives all the time. Yes. yes. And what's really, I've gotten around that by making a lot of times by making my main characters fictional <laughs> as opposed to having, which if you make a fictional main character, you have a lot more latitude with who's around them. And honestly, when I was reading the shadow queen, I thought you, you must have made her up because how could that possibly be a real character? And then when I read the author's note, I was like, my God, no. <laughs> and also I remembered that whole affair of the poisons, which is a big, huge scandal thing from, I think Judith Merkel Riley wrote about that. She was one, yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's just, you just can't, those are the things that are almost too crazy to be true i know yeah it's i know what you mean yeah and yet you get to a point when in a book and you say yeah come on that didn't really happen (laughs) sometimes you have to tone it down yeah you know because it's just too hard to to take so is there anything like you want to talk about or anything that sort of any topic that anything you might say to a, an aspiring historical novelist or something like that? What I would say to an aspiring historical novelist is be prepared for it to take time because historical novels, I think, take more time than other novels, in my opinion. And to persevere and just... Um, you have to you have to love the research and you have to be disciplined about not letting the research over take you over which i'm not very successful at i'm afraid yeah because it can be uh, i mean i'm such a slow writer it's crazy it it takes me forever to to get a book out yeah. So persevere. It's so it's such a rewarding field. It's just wonderful. And read, read a lot of historical fiction and study historical fiction and what works and what doesn't. And yeah, I guess yeah. the only thing, one thing that I really like to hear in your interviews and in other, any other author interviews is how on earth do people organize yes. their research? And I always, for myself, I always feel like maybe because it takes me five years to write a book and then by the time I'm ready to start another one, all the technology has changed, all the software has changed, the whole library systems have changed. (laughs) Well, it's all online now and oh, there's so much available. Whoa. I know that is that is really a boon for historical. It's, a, it's fantastic, but it's also can be overwhelming mm-hmm. because, in a way, you're helped by taking a very thin slice of a subject. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you have to discipline yeah. yourself to still do that. Yeah, yeah. discipline. I failed discipline. Self, <laughs> I failed self control in grade three. <laughs> 
Oh dear. I actually got an F in grade. Oh no. Uh-huh. And it's been uh, my problem ever since. Oh dear. I have my sort of early primary school thing was that I was very smart, but I was too much of a dreamer. Ah. But I was I daydreamed too much and that had to be stopped. You know? Oh boy. They didn't uh, see the novelist in you. No, and I didn't either until I was way older. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah. But does it, often enough, it strikes me as what a strange thing to be doing, delving into history and telling these wonderful stories. But we're lucky people. Oh, very lucky. Ah. Absolutely. And, and the thing is, too, what I have said to aspiring historical novelists is basically find the story, but don't beat yourself up if you have to change some things. You have, that's what the author's note is for. Exactly. Because <laughs> the story comes first. The story absolutely comes first. Yeah, if yeah. you don't hook the reader, yeah. you don't have a book. No, exactly. So, exactly. Yeah. so you're working now in in Elizabethan England. Yeah. Uh, something to do with Balkans. I cannot wait. Um, <laughs> well, you're gonna have I know to. I'm going to have to. <laughs> I know I'm going to have to. It's, <laughs> it's about two people. It's about the young and it's the first time I've had to, it didn't start this way. It's evolved this way. Right now it's the story of the young Queen Elizabeth and the falconer. A young woman from Kent, near Cambridge. And it was started with this interest. There's something, just a little mention on uh, um, some historical website or something about this. The name of this woman who, from Canterbury, who became Queen Elizabeth's master falconer, which is highly unlikely. Yeah. And there's very little evidence of this. But uh-huh. I'm going with it. I'm going to, I'm just intrigued by the possibility that there was a germ of truth in this. Uh-huh. And that although it's highly unlikely that she was the master falconer, she could very well have been a falconer for the queen. Uh-huh. That's what I'm doing. These <sighs> stories. All right. It's awesome. I, I Yeah. It's a huge challenge, but all novels are. Well, this has been so much fun. I'm, I'm delightful. <laughs> oh, good, good. And when this novel is done and is out in the world, we, or hopefully before then, actually, we'll have another conversation. <laughs> yeah, but I really appreciate you taking the time to hang out with me. What's well, delightful to see you and talk. It's great to see you too. It's been too long. Yes. It has been too long. Yeah. But isn't that one of the weird kind of benefits of this whole bizarre episode? That's we're all in lockdown, we're all on whatever, but suddenly there's Zoom and we can actually get together and see each other, people I haven't seen for years. No, I think it's fantastic. And also these festivals that I would never be able to go to because I was always a million miles away. Uh-huh. And now I can mm-hmm. connect with them online. Exactly. Uh, and I think that's going to per- be a permanent change. Uh, yeah. I think everything's going to be a hybrid of yeah. in person and online. Connection is so important. Yeah. 
And that's one of the reasons I started this podcast, actually. All right. Anyway, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to It's Just Historical, hosted by Suzanne Dunlap. I hope you'll subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google. Visit the podcast website at itsjusthistorical.com and find out more about me and my books at suzanne-dunlap.com. That's Suzanne with an S and Dunlap with an A. Until next time.